Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the tough questions about our political institutions, how they're failing, and how we might fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Well, we are recording this just weeks away from the November midterms, yet, yet another election every two years, and it's another Game of Inches election. Uh, I don't know who's going to win the Senate or the House, but I can safely predict that regardless of what happens, there will be no party with a decisive mandate. Uh, in fact, this has really been the dominant story of the last three decades of our politics, that every election is close. It's always an existential, high-stakes election, but nobody ever gets a large enough majority to really do anything significant. Will we ever get a moment in which a more permanent majority emerges? Is there a new realignment about to happen which will deliver that long-awaited governing majority? Or are we stuck in this unending cycle of anxiety-producing existential high-stakes elections that cost everybody sleep and raise everybody's blood pressure in which small sliver of low-information swing voters show up on election day and decide the fate of the country? So to help us figure this all out is... Timothy Schenk. He's a professor of history at George Washington University, co-editor of Dissent Magazine, a former New America fellow, and author of a wonderful new book called Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. Welcome, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So this is a really delightful read. It's, you are such a good writer, uh, so it's like a, a joy to read this book. And it, it's a, a series of profiles of, of eight important figures in American political history, some more famous than others, although all not uh, unknown. Uh, some are party hacks. Some are what you call moral prophets. So I thought we'd start off the podcast by going through uh, these characters in, in a little bit of detail. Uh, you, you space them out. So maybe you take us through the first four, and then we'll, we'll riff on that a little bit. And just sort of, I, I want to know why you chose these particular uh, characters in American political history and, and what they tell us about the American political system. Great. So before I go into the specific characters, maybe I'll start with the back end of that about the selection criteria, I guess you get political scientists would call it, that went into choosing these folks. And the one question that was looming in my background, it was looming in the background, was always looking for someone who could stand in for a political majority. And the assumption there is that there is some sort of dominant majority that's worth representing. And the standard line in political history is that you start with a basically Jeffersonian majority that emerges 
after George Washington leaves office. That's around, it gets reinvigorated and transformed during the age of Jackson. So you have this new Jacksonian Democrat coalition, then a Republican majority that emerges during the Civil War and then the run up to the Civil War and it actually causes the Civil War. Then it's reinvigorated in turn during the Gilded Age where you get the Republican Party transformed from a party of abolition to a party of business, a New Deal coalition that emerges out of the crisis of the Great Depression. And then these two polarized sometimes majorities that we all know and basically hate that govern our politics today, the Trumpified Republican populist right coalition against the Obama coalition that dominates the Democratic Party today. So each time I was looking for someone who both understood the coalition as it was taking shape and often took a leading role in making it. Now, that could be a straight-up Parson hack. The great instances of that in the book are folks like Martin Van Buren, who was the brains behind Jacksonian democracy, or Mark Hanna, who did a similar role for the industrial, business-friendly Republican coalition. But the book really snapped together for me when I realized some deep affinities between two of my key subjects, uh, Charles Sumner, who's one of the brains behind the Republican anti-slavery majority that emerges in the 1860s, and a century later, Phyllis Schlafly, who is an avatar of the populist right that is such a force in our politics today, and thinking about the ways in which Sumner and Schlafly both combined this very pragmatic commitment to winning elections with this more visionary devotion to changing the country in fundamental ways. In, in Sumner's case, by abolishing slavery, and Schlafly's by making this grassroots Republican coalition that in her mind was just as committed to overthrowing the Rockefeller Republican Yankee Northeastern establishment as it was New Dealers. Seeing those sort of harmonies across more than a century convinced me that there was something really important here that could be a through line for a larger story about American democracy. So you kind of toggle between the, the partisan hacks or sort of the, the machine politics people and these moral profit visionaries. What, what, what is the relationship between the pragmatic machine politics that builds majorities with a very sausage-making approach to politics versus the moral prophets who point us in a very ideological or principled direction? Do, do they need each other? Are they in contest with each other? It seems like there's both a, a can't-live-with-them, can't-live-without-them relationship. Yeah, it's obviously, or maybe not obviously, but I think definitely that secondary category where at least if you want to think of politics more as just a way of making sure the trains run on time, justifying the status quo, the source for change is almost always going to come from, you need some impetus from the outside, but the visionaries by themselves without being forced to reckon with, among other things, how you build a democratic majority, small d democratic majority, they're not going to get anywhere. But I wrote the book because, among other things, I wanted to think about figures who try to overcome that binary, right? The divide between the prophet from the outside and the pragmatist who's working from within. It's just a staple of the way that we think about politics. And to me, the most exciting figures are the ones who combine this devotion to really large-scale transformative change with a kind of ruthless pragmatism about how you go about making it. And one just purely historical question that I know you guys have talked about a lot before that really looms large for me is this question of, well, why can't we get sustained majorities today? And 
looking at American history broadly, it does seem to me that there's this really majoritarian friendly moment, roughly the 1890s into the 1860s, where you go from the gigantic Republican coalition of the first part of this period to the New Deal majority of the second part. And that this is really a heyday for a type of machine-oriented politician who's comfortable working within parties, comfortable working within the sort of major institutions governing American life more broadly. And that one reason why those majorities are so hard to sustain is that beginning in the post-war period and just escalating with time, we have the creation of this alternative political class. Uh, James Q. Wilson, and there's a fantastic book from early 1960s, he identified this transformation as was happening. He said, these folks are amateurs. They're not machine politicians who just care about patronage and they want to win elections. They care about ideas. They care about principles. That sounds great in theory, but it can lead to a sort of disdain for the work that goes into winning elections. And when you add in just constant donor money flowing around today, you almost have this alternative political class that emerges whose livelihood isn't connected to elections in any way, but just about giving their donors whatever they want to hear. Well, this is fascinating. There's so many, so many different avenues I want to go down here and questions I want to ask you. And I love that you've mentioned Phyllis Schlafly because I knew Phyllis not very well, but I knew her uh, when I worked on Capitol Hill. And I remember she wrote a book called The Supremacist, The Tyranny of Judges and How to Stop It in, in 2004. And this is the kind of book that conservatives, Republicans, progressives, and Democrats don't write anymore. And I find it very interesting. It's a very interesting commentary on, on where we are. But I want to pose a question to you, maybe a little provocative. But and the question I want to pose, and I'm very curious to hear about in this moment and how you see where we are, but what if elections aren't the problem? What if the lack of a mandate isn't the problem? Right. Uh, do we need mandates to do big things? Are they alone sufficient or are they necessary? But we need other things. And when I'm listening to the different people that you've mentioned and going back and reading the, the stuff that you've written on this, it seems that what realignments are about are about, if we take Skoranek's uh, term for it as well, you know, kind of transformative type reconstructive leaders. But what's happening in a realignment is manifested in an election and a critical election, if we take VOK. But it, the hard work of that, the coalitional basis and, and the focus on the, on the politics both proceeds and continues after that election. And what I find very interesting about the people that you've mentioned is that they may be more you know, engaged in more pragmatic politics, although Van Buren was certainly, towards the end of his life, a leading abolitionist, and it was the, I think he ran for the presidency on the free soil ticket. Um, you know, he certainly believed deeply in ideas, but yes, he backed Jackson because he really didn't like John Quincy Adams, and he is the epitome of a machine-type politician. But it's needed, that kind of focus, that kind of pragmatism is needed to enact kind of moral, transformative-type change. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. And so Barry Goldwater, right, is often, you know, in, in the kind of Goldwater revolution that we see, the conservative movement put in a lot of hours and a lot of work in the 50s and 60s and 70s to take over the party in the 80s. And then it wasn't even complete. And it's constantly, constantly battling because that's the nature of politics, that you have to have one in the same. 
And so I'm not sure quite exactly where my question is here, but is the problem today in our politics, and maybe I'm kind of jumping to the end here, but is the problem in our politics today the fact that we lack a certain kind of person doing politics? Or is it that we don't do politics anymore and we just expect these big elections to kind of change everything? And when that doesn't happen in between them, we kind of scratch our heads and and wonder what to do next. Does that make sense? I don't know. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And I don't think that I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm throwing a lot at you. Yeah. Grad school prepares me, if nothing else, for something like this. (laughs) But I think that elections are not the sole cause of the problems we're facing today but they are probably our best starting place for a solution. And just to make an obvious point, if you want to achieve real change in the country, political change is one route you can go down. It's not the only one. You can work through economics, you can work through culture. There are all sorts of different avenues that you could pursue. And to make another point that's worth emphasizing, winning a big election by big numbers itself doesn't guarantee anything changes. Arguably, the sort of triumphant point for the New Deal coalition is 1936, when FDR wins like a truly stonking majority, and Democrats do as well, on the back of a true working class coalition. Very, very rare uh, instance in American politics where that happens. But that doesn't lead to significant policy accomplishments in FDR's second term on par with what happened in the first. So the major, what we remember for the New Deal for chiefly, it's what happens in those first four years. And despite winning that thumping majority in 36, the New Deal agenda almost instantly runs into a wall for lots of important reasons that we can go down a rabbit hole and discuss if we want to. But it's just to agree with you that winning an election by itself doesn't guarantee significant policy change. So I think that the history that I'm telling in this book, it's drawing attention to the importance of those elections, which I think is especially relevant at a time over these last few years where there's been a lot of discussion about the crisis of democracy, especially in liberal and progressive circles, discussion where you can talk about norms, you can talk about institutions, you can talk about the ways in which American society in all sorts of respects isn't delivering for ordinary people. But kind of strangely, I think, in all that talk about the crisis of democracy, think that progressives in particular might have lost sight of how important and how difficult it is to put put together a majority for change. But I think that's only the beginning of the conversation. So as much as I want to say that this is a book for the key doll mythologies, read this and your problems will be solved, I think it's more read this book and the real problem that we'll we'll be facing is clarified. And then we can start having conversations, especially not only in the progressive lefty circles I'm a part of, but that's just inevitably an audience I'm concerned with, questions about how we link together a winning majoritarian message with a policy strategy for delivering meaningful change and a vision of how we can get the country to a truly different place where it feels like ordinary Americans do have more say over their lives. And Lee, can I just follow up real quick? Because that's really interesting and it it got me thinking. But so is the problem, to me, it seems that electoral majorities are forged through action. And it seems like today, though, the emphasis on elections that we have seems like we will act once we can figure out how to kind of put all the puzzle pieces together. And then we will then we'll be in the promised land. And I guess that's the kind of thing that I was getting at is that how do we overcome this hump and get back to the idea that you forge strange bedfellows and new coalitions and New Deal coalitions and whatever else it may be through years and years and years of trying to win in politics and acting and doing the things like you write about with Obama, former President Obama, and, and organizing and, and all these other things. That's what it takes to be successful in politics and to transform it. Not to kind of sit there and say, okay, where are the different groups and can I f- assemble this? Like even Van Buren, he's writing Thomas Ritchie and, and you know they're acting, they're trying, they're figuring it out as they go. And it turns out sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. 
And this is sort of, I'm facing a micro, uh, in my own small way, the problem that Obama felt like he was confronting, I think, his entire career, which is you are a product of this political system, but you're also trying to change it in the first place. And in order to get the sort of transformative ambition, the transformative legislation that Obama thought was necessary through, he felt like he had to tell this blue America political hobbyist class that's obsessed over whatever cable news is spinning them that day. He says, yeah, yeah, you can take that stuff seriously, but you also be aware of what, you have to be aware of what the world outside cares or ordinary Americans and delivering something that makes a difference in their lives. And to the extent that a book can, a book about politics can have any impact on politics itself, you know, always a tricky proposition. I think that this really is a book that's to my fellow political addicts out there who really do want this to be a better country. You have to be aware about the condition, the problem that you're facing, and in particular, the importance of building these majority coalitions. And we're not going to get anywhere unless we start with that as our problem. And then that can lead to the questions that the sort of conversations that I think you're gesturing to, where on the left side, for instance, it might be, what would it take to really bring about, if not a full-fledged revival of the organized labor in the United States, then at least give meaningful public backing to the grassroots activism that we see with Amazon that we see with Starbucks right now and give some spark back to organized labor. And by the way, not just organized labor in the public sector with the government, but or bringing organized labor in the private sector back, which really was the key to the New Deal labor movement when it was at its peak. And those conversations, which think about policy, both the short-term deliverables that they can give to people right now, but how you build, co you build coalitions, you build institutions that last over time. I think that's really when you get that sort of transformative promise of an agenda that isn't just about responding to whatever the crisis of the moment is, but helping set the terms of a debate for a generation to come. So I want to push more on the current moment. So in the book, you write that we've had these moments before. So I want to ask you what you think is similar about this moment to other moments and what lessons other moments have. And then I want to tell you why I think this moment is distinctly different. Great. And this is, well, the story to me is always going to welcome the point that every moment is different. We are splitters by definition. We love to point out the, the tiny intricate differences that separate any one moment from another. So, But I think in profound ways. But I want to hear what you have to yes, say. Yes, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, yeah, profound differences too. But I will say that, so you can pick your moment that you're looking for as a president, but that as a baseline, there is a sense that both the institutions of democracy themselves are up for grabs. Anyone who's familiar with political history of the Civil War and Gilded Age era will know that norms in American history almost seems as if they're made to be broken. That's a constant. You also, or at least a recurring theme, you also have widespread discontent with the status quo, a sense that the system isn't delivering for people like us. Fill in your details for who people like us are. That's also a recurring feature. And in particular, as important as durable majorities have been in American political history, this isn't the first time where we have a sense that neither party is capable of either delivering fundamental change or even just winning elections on a consistent basis. So you can pick your problem that people have with the system right now, and there's a really, really good chance that you can find some period earlier in history where there's lots of discontent. I will say that to me, something that is especially important to point out for progressive circles is that 
in particular, this notion that we have all these big visionary plans for how we can make a different country, but we can't get the political system to respond to it. In a sense, that's sort of the history of reformers in the United States. It's a problem that we're always rediscovering for ourselves. And I think there's something, as depressing as it can be, that this problem isn't new. I think there can be something kind of heartening in realizing that people have been here before, and some of them have come up with strategies that were able to overcome all the impediments to the system for securing real change in the past. Right. So I, and there are certainly similarities. And I think there's actually quite a lot of similarities between now and the late Gilded Age, yeah. probably more than any other. That's my go-to as well. Yeah. I, I, I want to get back to the to the strategies, but first I, I want to talk about two things that I think are uniquely distinct about this period. One is the extent to which American politics is so fully nationalized and so much of the focus is on Washington. So what that means is just that there's a lot less play in the joints, that there's a lot fewer opportunities for coalitions to build kind of independent and orthogonal to the two major parties. Uh, the, the other thing that I think is distinct, and it was something that you were starting to get at when you were talking about Obama being a product of the system, is that the system itself is so built up. There's such an incrustation of people around the two parties who have very distinct ideas about what the parties should do and that everything can constantly be message tests and there's sort of th this like micro feedback which makes it hard to do big things because you're to, to James's point if you have to constantly poll test everything and do things that comport with certain donors and certain political class actors in order to have permission to do them, it's very hard to take the kind of decisive big actions that can actually bring about the transformative new majority realigning, making change. So I wonder what you think of those two points and what you think the lessons are for folks who might want to try to find new majorities in this moment from the profiles that you've written in this book. Yeah, I'm more concerned about the second than the first, because I think that the flip side of the coherence of the parties and the difficulty of forming these bipartisan coalitions totally take that point. But it also means that early majorities weren't quite as imposing as they looked at the time, right? That the New Deal coalition I was just referring to, well, of course, they had to deal with a lot of representatives from the Jim Crow South who were in some ways with FDR's platform, in some other ways, very much not. You have just sort of the difficulty of even though at its peak, there were barely 100 elected Republicans in Washington, D.C., well, those Southern Democrats still wielded a lot of power. And so that's one of the big reasons why the gigantic electoral victory of 1936 didn't translate into gigantic legislative change. So and I think we see with the Biden administration for all the faults, all the things you can complain about, they were able to get a lot through with a very, very narrow majority. And I think that's the benefit of this polarization is that when you do get a majority together, as long as you make sure that everyone's on board, it's easier to get people, everyone on board. And therefore, you can push through some changes that in an earlier era, those deceptively large majorities wouldn't have been able to take advantage of. So that's a small point. But I do think the broader question of what we do with this encrusted political class and institutions, and the institutions associated with it, that's really, really serious. But maybe this is just the optimist in me who's being too much, too stuck in that hope and change 2008 era. But 
I take some comfort in the fact that I think that lots of these people on both sides sincerely are committed to some to their politics. They're not here. They're not venal. They're not stupid. They're not here just to make a quick buck. If you wanted to do that, there are lots of ways you could do it that are a lot less demanding than getting into the Washington swamp. Now, in practice, it can be gross and awful and terrible in all sorts of ways. But I think that 60 years after the rise of amateurs and during this moment where even if I have my quibbles about how the crisis of democracy is often perceived, I think that, yeah, there are some real problems I think everyone can see that we're facing. Maybe we're ready for a conversation that takes seriously, all right, activists of the world who really do want to make a country, make a better country, That mean, if that means you don't get everything you want, if that means that you have to reckon with the need to build a majority, which means taking the concerns of ordinary people seriously while trying to persuade them and bring them over to your way of thinking, how do you go about pushing that strategy? And that type of conversation, which moves beyond just wishing the world was different and accepting that the way things are is the way that they're always going to be, that's always been the source of promise for democracy. And maybe an upside of just the shitty in a billion different ways uh, experience of the last few years can be a renewed appreciation of what democracy at its best can look like. Can I just push you on that point a little bit? Uh, yeah, I don't think Lee's going to like fr- this optimism. Uh, no, I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm, I love I, it. I, Amen. I, as I, as I often say, I'm a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. And as you write in the book, Tim, which is a, a great quote, democracy's appeal is more about hope than experience. So we always have to be over-optimistic in order to make this thing that we call democracy work. But there's two points I want to push you on. One is this idea of ordinary people, which is a phrase I've heard you say a number of times here and is a phrase that I have kind of an allergic reaction to because I don't think there are any ordinary people. Uh, and maybe by that you mean people who don't who are non non activists or people who don't pay close attention to politics. I'm not sure they're ordinary. We're all extraordinary in our in our own ways. And there's incredible diversity within that group of people who are not politically engaged who have very different and sometimes competing values and priorities. So I I think there's often this myth of, well, if we just think about the people who are not engaged in politics, somehow they will all agree or they all share the same problems or the same views. The second question is about when do activists accept that maybe we don't get everything? And again, I, I think the challenge here is Not that it's hard for people to accept that we can't get everything, but we have a political system, particularly an electoral system, that encourages people to think in maximalist terms, that tends to overpromise. You you elect us and we'll do all these things and underdeliver. And also, more importantly, we have a media complex and an advocacy complex that thrives on maximalism rather than incrementalism. Yeah, and totally take your point about the myth of the ordinary American. And I really did just have in my mind, maybe I'm spending too much time in political science space, but that basic division between the 10% or less of the country that follows politics as a hobby and the 90%, which is really weird in lots of ways, uh, who in other ways, in their own distinctive ways, who maybe will be brought to care about politics sometimes, but it's not an essential part of their life. It's not a pastime for them. 
But even within that giant 90% space, too, you could zoom in on an individual. You could something that is frustrating to some and hilarious and maybe inspiring to others. There are, for instance, the folks who just have a generalized anti-establishment position so that they might say, oh, yeah, I like Donald Trump because he causes trouble for rich people. That AOC, she seems interesting, too. Right. The sort of coherence that those of us who live in political land can make it hard to think your way into the space of someone who isn't just constantly seeing America through the filter of red versus blue. But point taken that it's a really, really diverse country out there. And that of the, I don't know, 330 million people who are here, 30 million of them care a lot about politics and the 300 million room for a lot of fighting once you get through to the other side. Like that's totally taken. On the other point, which is that there's a, 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 you a media me. complex and a campaign yeah. complex and an advocacy complex that pushes very hard on the maximalist vision because that's the thing that raises money and gets people charged up. And the incrementalist vision is not inspiring and not motivating. And to the extent that, that these are all organizations that have their own financial models of Ginning up anger. Yeah, is there no way to defeat the political infotainment complex that exerts such outsized influence on all of us? And the pessimism, you could be right, but I hope that people just get sick of it eventually. And that, but but isn't the problem that so many people are sick of it, and they've tuned out? So everything in politics is run by the people who are addicted to it and are trying to draw everybody else into this all or nothing fight of in which nothing is ever going to get settled because the the whole machine runs on nothing getting settled. So I don't want to give up on them yet. I think they can still be redeemed. I think these are people who sincerely do care about the causes that they're advocating. If we can persuade them that this isn't even in their own interest, that there's hope yet for bringing them into our side, that's, and honestly, it's even thinking about, for instance, going back to Obama, the success he had in persuading this blue American elite coalition that there was no red or blue America, there was no red America, there was no blue America, and that there was a change to be made by building that majority coalition. That wasn't so long ago that he was able to mobilize Democratic activists around that promise. And or, if Trump year, the Trump era can't do anything else, hopefully it would persuade these people to take those questions seriously. All right, maybe well, let's, get excited let, about let, them. Let's take them seriously. So a bunch of progressive activists. Uh, these are, this, is, this is your- My people, yeah. Your people. What are they getting wrong? They, they seem to spend more time talking about Trump than they do Obama too, right? I mean, like if we're thinking about uh, the 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 coalition that's been formed to shape who's you know shaped the narrative for the future, I'm I just I'm I'm listening to this exchange and I'm fascinated by it because I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. But anyway, sorry to interject. All right, so you're saying I've got my I've got my progressive coalition there or progressive right. representatives are here. Right. Um, what's next? Uh, where, where where do we where, where do they compromise? Like what 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 should they back down on? How, how should they act? Okay, but on that I'm gonna Tim I'm gonna jump in here though because Lee that's not what pol- politics is not about deciding ahead of time when you compromise. Compromise emerges out of the struggle. It emerges out of the I'm gonna try to do whatever I can. But we're in and the then, struggle. But. We're, we are and we're not. You, you mentioned this maximalist type kind of electoral um, focus, but it seems to me it's more about like, just like, don't let those other yahoos win because they'll be in control of the factory and the republic will fall into the ocean type thing. In fact, in terms of like the clear policy specific things that, that we want to maximize success on, they're, they're few and far between, it seems to me. 
I don't know. I think that there are lots of, I think there's competition within the progressive space. And because it's such a broad and always diverse community, you can always pick a representative who embodies one description and someone else who stands for another. I think that there is in, especially the sort of DSA left that I am a part of, there are policy proposals galore for changing the country and a lot of frustration with a Trump above all else politics that is probably more of an MSNBC brand uh, progressivism. Although, of course, MSNBC, lots of numbers, lots of influence behind that type of liberalism. And I do, though, take the point that inevitably these are debates that you can't settle ahead of time. And if Joe Biden doesn't run in 2024, benefit of that for Democrats will be the chance to argue over this stuff and see how tested against what the real people in their coalition want. You can get a sense of, okay, this is the message that our party is sending us. How can we respond to it? And if nothing else, the the Joe Biden's victory in 2020 is a sign that what Twitter and the rest of the activist class, which of course I'm just going to say again, like I am a part of that. I am one of those, not just college educated, a freaking college professor who is talking about politics and as obsessed with this stuff as anyone else, that there can be severe disconnects between that world and in this first case, Democratic voters and the next step, the electorate at large. So there's capacity to say, it's not a dodge, I think, but saying appropriately for someone who believes in small D democracy, let's make a really concerted effort to pay attention to what the electorate at large is demanding from us. I think that's an obligation that my side should have. And the appropriate response is to say, listen, we can have our set of concerns that we think are important. We have the vast left-wing agenda and my politics are very boring in all of its left-wing particulars. The only thing that I think sets me apart from a standard issue DSA leftist is saying that I take the democratic part in democratic socialism really, really seriously. And that means doing the best to figure out what that electorate wants and trying to figure out a way to meet them on the grounds where they're closest to us and then bring them closer on other issues, which might go back to saying that if evidence indicates, as I think there's good reason to believe, that there's grounds for making a progressive majority devoted to the idea that Democrats exist because this country belongs to all of us, not just 1%, that those are broad economic populist messages really can resonate if you find a way to get in the door on cultural issues, which involves coming up with a message that defends causes you believe that that you believe in gives people space if they're not there already and while you're working through politics pursuing aggressively cultural change which turns out to be another really effective way of bringing people to your side that seems a way of you're never going to be able to give everyone on your side everything they want right away but a, the best strategy for maximizing my side's leverage in both the political sphere and the cultural sphere ultimately for change that benefits everyone in that coalition And I think that this conversation, too, has really highlighted the problems with trying to make sense of our politics with these kind of polarized lenses. When in reality, you know, my side is kind of meaningless if it's divorced from any kind of uh, policy, any kind of aspirational like things that you want to win on. After all, presumably, that's why we're so polarized, right? I mean, at some point, preferences matter, uh, one would think, and parties matter to the extent that they help people win more. Just ask the Whig party, right? They're gone. They're not around anymore because they didn't help people win more. They died out rather quickly at the time. So I think that it is helpful to see the coalitional side of politics and that In the past, it seems to me what we've seen is that people, and I share your optimism. You know, I I, I call democracy politics. It's like baseball. It's worse than baseball. You're going to lose way more, way more than you're going to win. 
and you're going to work at it for 100 years, 150, 200 years. Look at the effort to get the 19th Amendment ratified. Look at the civil rights movement. Look at the anti-lynching effort. Whatever it may be, you're going to struggle forever. And when you finally win, you're going to get like 28% of what you wanted. And that's like a really great day. And that's going to be the greatest victory of all time. But what happens as you struggle over that process is that you are re, you know, you're readjusting all these coalitions and you're bringing new people in and you're awakening them to new things. And maybe they don't want what you want, but they have different reasons to be on your side. All of that different stuff is happening because politics is inherently adverbial. It's not static. It unfolds over time. It happens in a place. It requires effort. Those things are the secret sauce, the magic that makes America such a dynamic place. Today, we have this idea of politics no, no longer. It's static now. We can tell right from an election what's possible and what's not based on the letter after your name and the nominate score behind your name. It's static. It doesn't like what's the point of fighting? I, so many senators tell me today, well, why would I force that vote? I'm going to lose. Well, that's you, you lose until you don't lose. That's the whole point of politics. And so it occurs to me, and I'm, you know, as a conservative, but I love it. I love the outliers. I, I love progressives. I love conservatives because that's where change comes from. And if you think about politics and you slightly reconceptualize it in terms of the status quo, you begin to see why the change is going to come from the outliers. It's going to come from your AOCs. It's going to come from your Phyllis Schlafly's and others. Van Buren is a little bit of an oddball. Uh, maybe that's because it happened so long ago where he's an insider and an outsider. Andrew Jackson certainly is an outsider. You have the progressive Republicans of the, uh, you know, of the early 20th century. And you have to have people who are willing to side with other people that are not necessarily on their same side because they can help get what they want. But right now we're so wedded to these ideas of parties that I can't side with a Democrat because if I do, I'm going to be like helping the forces of evil. If you're winning, you're winning. And if you're not, you're not. And I guess my question is, and you mentioned earlier, like with Obama and as a product of the system and something jumped out at me in your fabulous New York Times article about speaking with a candor that he could not afford or he soon could no longer afford. And I think this is a this is a, th I mean, yes, it's, it's terrible to change an institution from the inside. No one likes it. it doesn't, it's not just politics. It's everywhere. It's the worst thing in the world. But it is possible. And I'm not saying that Trump has done it well. And I'm not saying that Trump has been successful. And Trump, in many respects, has governed just like George W. Bush with a bad Twitter habit. So I think we can overstate the transformative, disruptive potential of Trump on the actual daily politics that we see. But in reality, Trump spoke with a candor that everybody thought he could no longer, that there's no way he can afford that. And he ended up winning. Now, granted, he won a very small majority in the Electoral College, but he still won. And there's this sense that we have to, this kind of overly cautious, like we can't put all our cards out there. We can't push as hard as we want. And we can't try to transform the system around us. And then because that's uncertain and we may not win and it may be, there may be a lot of downside, but like, you know, if you look at your Jeffersons and your Jacksons and your Lincolns and your FDRs and your Reagans, that's precisely what they did. And I think we read back into history a lot of the certainty, but it wasn't always a foregone conclusion when they first set off on their journey that, that this is how it's going to end up. And so I think I don't like the, the, the kind of fatalism. I share your optimism. And I think that the fatalism is tied to these parties that honestly, I mean, don't really, they don't agree on pretty much anything internally anymore, other than the fact that they just don't like the other side. 
but that, I mean, how long can that last? Yeah. And I think it's more of a, no, no, but we start from the assumption and this, I think it just gets to the question of why we keep coming back to pessimists versus optimists. Will you be glass half full or glass half empty about the fact that for all honest, nobody knows what things are going to look like 10 years from now. And for some that could be disabling because you can just easily imagine the worst case scenarios playing out. And we saw something that was very close to that on January 6th. Never want to downplay that. But there's also in that ignorance, just an awareness of how much things can change. And this is the benefit of history. You look at the past and you realize, oh my God, nothing could have seemed more stable in 1850 than the American political system. It had just overcome the challenge of slavery thanks to the Compromise of 1850. You wouldn't guess then that you were 10 years away from civil war, yet there you landed. You wouldn't have guessed in 1924, when Democrats are so thoroughly marginalized as a coalition that the New Deal order was right around the corner, can never see that stuff coming. And that means right now, I think that we have to be prepared for the fact that the system could take some very, very bad turns. But we also have to be open to the possibility in a weird way when you're making the case for optimism, overcoming that innate skepticism, just given we might have learned not to ask for more from the system, but that we're right to demand it at the moment. And if things are going to get better, it will be because you have people who are willing to sketch out that broad vision while recognizing that the only way we have a good chance of getting there from my perspective is if you start with building that large majority coalition but i just want to leave real quick they're not at, we're not asking for the system and, and progressives and conservatives and especially in mid-20th century america are very similar they are trying to take over the system so that the system will do things differently because after all that's what like free society is all about. It's inherently uncertain and you got to hustle. And if you don't hustle, the people who are hustling harder than you are going to win. And if that's bad in your vine, then you need to get out there and, and go to work. And it's a grueling thing. It is a grueling enterprise, but that is the price of freedom. Yeah. And the message I have for my side too is why I have that whole chapter on Schlafly. I'm partly it's because she does represent, I think, this populist Republican coalition really well, but it's also to show Despite the fact that she was caricatured as sort of the grand mistress of the KKK at the time, that, and despite the reality that she was a former member of the John Birch Society, she was also a very smart person who pursued her goals with that mixture of vision and pragmatism that makes for, that can make for transformative change in American political history. And that, to my side, if you don't take those questions seriously, you can bet that there's someone on the other side who is and who will beat you at the polls. So it doesn't, you can't just, in a way, you can take comfort in the idea that, oh, Democrats have this natural majority, and if Republicans win, it's only going to be because they stage a coup. Again, January 6th, lots of reasons to think that. But to my mind, a prospect that progressives should take very seriously is the idea that a future Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin or pick in your more normie-ish Republican here will win election fair and square at the polls and then go about pushing through legislation that, in my view, makes for a more unequal, less just, less generous society that can be just as damaging in its own way as what Trumpists would cook up on their own. So let me ask you one final question. And and in the spirit of things that we couldn't imagine but might have changed things, I, I think if Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic nominee in 2016, he would have won and we would have been in a very different place. Uh, and, and I think he would have executed that Obama vision that you uncovered of, of economic populism. What do you think about that? Yeah, always hard to say just because of how controversial he was within the party establishment. But I think that some sort of Bernie-esque position that didn't fall into the trap when Trump said that 
make America great again, the Democratic response who often was America's already great in 2016, and who kept that position of the outsider, which I think in order to make an economic populist position sell, you can never be satisfied with a status quo that's not delivering for so many people. I think that Bernie was a reminder of that. To my mind, what, the way I framed the chapter on Obama was almost tragically that Obama also could have been that candidate if he hadn't been elected eight years earlier, made those compromises with the establishment along the way, and ended up by 2016 becoming the symbol of a system that he set out to change. And that almost an Obama who had more deftly navigated relationships with the Democratic establishment and who was able to more convincingly sell a message of economic populism to the Democratic Party's like African-American base that that was really the moment to push through the type of change that he outlined 25 years earlier. But I think that the promise of Sanders did show that when you take this economic populist message seriously, when you use it as a framing device to show the message that you're delivering, the fights that you're picking, the arguments that you're having, the statement that you're taking to the public day after day after day after day, it shows that even in a system that is so sclerotic, so hidebound, that if there was room in 2016 for change, yes, I know that then Trump came along and you can't just magically transport yourself back to that moment. But the good side of uh, the public, like myself, having basically memories that last as long as a goldfish, is I think that there's always the capacity to push against a coalition and to change it. And that 2016 isn't so long ago. So that type of message, which did have a lot of promise then in different set of hands, I think could deliver in the future. Well, we all eagerly await that future in which we get out of our sclerotic doom loop and onto a new generation in which hope once again triumphs over experience. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.